When the world has got you down Alzheimer's sucks. It's an equal opportunity disease that chips away at everything we hold dear. And to date, there's no cure. So until there is, we continue to fight with the most powerful tool in our arsenal, love. This is Love Conquers Alls, a real and really positive podcast that takes a deep dive into everything Alzheimer's, the good, the bad, and everything in between. And now, here are your hosts, Susie Singer-Carter and me, Don Priest. Hi, I'm Susie Singer-Carter, and um, this is Love Conquers Alls. And today I have a very special co-host, which I've never done before, a guest co-host who is another wonderful advocate in the caregiving arena and community, and she's extremely active. She spoke on the Alzheimer's Worldwide Summit with me, and I just adore her, and you're going to love her too. Her name is Trish Lobb. Trish, I'm so excited to have you here. I'm so excited to be a guest co-host, and I have to just thank Don for letting me take his co-host seat today. I'm excited to work with you, but I'm also super, super, I next to never say this, I'm really excited about the guests that you've got. I know, me too, me too. So um, I don't know about you, but but there's been, with the quarantine, I've binged so much TV lately, that's all, I mean, that's, what else can we do besides eat, right? <laughs> <laughs> Even yeah. my dog, even my dogs are fat. It's sad. It's really sad. <laughs> I feel bad about it. I feel not that bad, but a little bad. But you know, so but I've done a lot of binging, haven't you? I've been, I mean, it's not even a guilty pleasure anymore. It's like a, a necessity. And right, I run out of right. really good and don't and you run out of good projects, right? And so I I was I wasn't really wanting to watch this miniseries Dope Sick. It's subject matter, which is OxyContin and the opiate crisis. And I was like, oh, it's too close to home because I had a very close family member that was involved in that whole world. And, but I, I decided to, because I love Michael Keaton, I like Peter Sarsgaard, and I thought, okay, let me watch it. It was so good. And then I told you about it. You watched it how many times? <laughs> well, okay. I watched it twice back to back. And I'll be honest, I heard about it and I shame on me. I thought, oh, this is going to be a documentary. It's going to be probably not very riveting. And I could not have been more wrong. Like I said, I watched it back to back two times and it was fascinating and it's absolutely horrifying at the same time. Yes. And I know Susie, from talking to you, what really caught our attention was the um, tease at the end of the episode. Yeah. Well, let's back it up one second, because I want to say what Dope Sick was about, the investigation of Purdue Laboratory and the Sackler family and this dynamic duo, these attorney generals from Virginia, one who is our esteemed guest, who is Rick Mountcastle, who was played by Peter Sarsgaard brilliantly, and his partner, Randy Ramsire, just riveting, you guys. But then on the, the finale, they, you know, just when they're, they're tying up the final bow, as it were, on this case... In walks another case presented by Randy to, to Rick about the, another crisis in, in pharma, which was a, a drug called Depakote, which is, uh, has been extremely abused along with other drugs in the nursing home. And it's touched me very closely. And my mom is a victim of that, of that kind of abuse. And I found it so interesting because Danny Strong is the showrunner. And he was saying, you know, the, the, the powerful thing is to put a face to crisis, when you can put a human face to crisis, it 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 creates change, right? It's important. Absolutely. It's important. Otherwise, it just noise. 
And so they did it brilliantly by putting us in into the actual lives of these investigators and really see them be crusaders, really. And then watch somebody like like Michael Keaton's character, this incredibly moral and, and empathetic doctor, get conquered almost by this drug. So it really, it really put a face on it for me. It made me frame how I looked at my family member that became addicted to it. And so it's powerful. And I think that's why I wanted, I personally wanted to talk to Rick because he, he went on to take on another pharma, which is Abbott Labs, and they manufacture Depakote, which is a drug that I didn't know anything about this drug. My mom was given it in the hospital and became, suddenly she was in a wheelchair after being ambulatory and became incontinent. And uh, yeah, she was, she was literally like a, a, like someone had given her a lobotomy. And I didn't know until about two months after she got out of the hospital that her GP uh, alerted me that she was on a drug called Depakote and that it was actually quite deadly for people in the elder community. So uh, this is, it, this is, absolutely terrifying. And when I got my mom off of it, she never walked again. You've had experience with that as well, Trish, with your dad. Right. With my dad, uh, not only with Depakote, but another medication that's being used um, off-label for the same kind of uh, wrong purpose that Depakote's been being used. But I'll let Rick get into that. What, what, What happened with Depakote and that to me, my experience that applies to several other medications as well. Exactly. Well, I cannot express how esteemed this guest is. He and his partner have received the Department of Justice Achievement Award by Attorney General Eric Holder and Executive Office for U.S. Attorney's Director H. Marshall Jarrett, who said, and I quote, that he is continually humbled by their resiliency, dedication, and unparalleled work ethic to accomplish this noble mission. Today's awardees exemplify what it truly means to be a patriot, and it is an honor to recognize them for their extraordinary service. And it's an honor for us to invite Rick Mountcastle to our show. How are you, Mr. Mountcastle? Well, I am just doing just great, uh, Susie and Trish, and thank you for inviting me uh, to participate in your podcast. Uh, It's an honor. Um, It's particularly an honor because I view your audience, who I I believe would mostly be caregivers uh, for patients with dementia, I view them as real heroes. Um, I know I've never dealt with um, uh, a relative with dementia, but I have, uh, I did take care of my aging mother for a number of years. And I know how much work, uh, how much patience, um, how much effort goes into taking care of a loved one. And I, you know, just knowing you add that onto that uh, Alzheimer's, uh, th- those people that are in the audience, you guys are really heroes. So it's an honor for me to be here. Thank you so much for saying that. I know everyone else appreciates that. We feel we feel that way about caregivers because they are the the, uh, the uncelebrated heroes. And so thank you for yes. saying that. Yes, so they're, they're heroes that don't get enough recognition. And so... Thank you for giving me this opportunity to maybe give them a little bit of recognition. Aww. I just uh, appreciate you guys so much. 
Ditto. Well, thank you. <laughs> um, I think we wanna, we're going to jump into, we have so much to ask you. Can I just say one thing before? Yes. We, oh, yes. One of the things I have to do, because I'm a lawyer, so we've always got some legal you know, fine print, is I need to just put some fine print into this podcast, if I can do that Absolutely. right now. Absolutely. Yes, legitimize us. <laughs> so uh, I just want to make it clear that my statements and comments during this podcast are my personal views and opinions and are no, in no way related to any position with either federal or state government that I've had in the past or may have currently. We will also have that in the show notes and on the screen. So no shenanigans, people. Um <laughs> <laughs> So I know a bit about the story, but Rick, could you explain to everybody, share with everybody how you and Randy became aware of the Depakote crisis and what that means? Yes. So uh, we, um, at the time I lived and Randy still lives in a a town called Abingdon, uh, Virginia, in far Southwest Virginia, not to be confused with West Virginia. It is in Virginia, uh, in the far Southwestern corner. It's a few miles from Tennessee. Uh, it's basically coal country. It's in the middle of the Appalachian Mountains. Um, and uh, many of the people depicted in Dope Sick, um, in, in those, the scenes, uh, the mining scenes and the scenes locally, are just like the people that, that are depicted in that uh, miniseries. Um, working class, work very hard jobs. Um, a lot of, many of them in the coal mining industry, farming, other jobs in which they get injuries. And so in the late 1990s, uh, and for, and for many years, even before that, one of the, uh, main issues in that region, uh, was the abuse of prescription drugs that had been going on for decades down there. And in the late 1990s, we were looking at ways to get at that problem. We prosecuted a number of uh, doctors for overprescribing opioids and other painkillers. And in the course of doing that, we discovered in the late 1990s that there's this new drug coming uh, into play called OxyContin. It was the drug that was in demand. It was the drug that doctors were prescribing. It was the drug that was being abused on the streets down there. And it was a drug that was fueling uh, a lot of other crimes, uh, property crimes, thefts, burglaries, uh, their communities being devastated by it. And we were sitting around the office one afternoon after work talking about cases and, hey, we're prosecuting doctors. We've got all these uh, street drug dealers that we're going after. Uh, And we're hearing anecdotally about um, from pharmacists, local pharmacists who know their community. It's a small town. They know who's who's doing, who's into what and who's got legitimate uh, pain and prescriptions and and the like, complaining about sales reps from Purdue Pharma who were being aggressive and coming into the pharmacies and demanding that they fill prescriptions, even ones that they were hesitant to fill. So in our conversations, we, we, we just were talking and said, well, maybe we need to take a look at a level above the doctors. Maybe we need to take a look at Purdue Pharma and see what they're doing, what's going on here. And so that kind of kicked off 
the case. It was, it was a feeling that we had an obligation to our community, which was being devastated by this drug, to try to get to the root of the problem. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because, it, you know, I'm in Los Angeles, the, the opposite of rural and, you know, uh, and when it started to get prevalent here, it was it was really nicknamed like the white collar heroin, you know, because <laughs> it was it was it was widely abused, but nobody really talked about it because it was prescribed. Yeah. So, yeah. And of course, it was called down here it was called hillbilly heroin. Uh, and, and as was depicted in the miniseries, Purdue targeted those areas where there were uh, a lot of people who were getting injured on the job and having to go to the doctor and get painkillers like, you know, Virginia, uh, Kentucky, sort of all those mining areas, as well as Maine, where they have the lumber and the logging and all that. Those were like the first areas targeted uh, to launch the drug into OxyContin. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't know that. Okay, that's so interesting. So then how did you get, how did Depakote come to you? And how did you embrace that after going through this extremely grueling, long investigation? And if you haven't watched the, this miniseries, do, because you're going to be absolutely riveted because, you know, this, it's a daunting, I've gone to court just to protect my mom at one point, And I, I literally went three times and, and uh, I had no standing and I was her, her legal conservator of person and I had no standing to make any decisions that were really important. And I asked the judge who does then, if not me, mm-hmm. you know, and there's just no good answer. So I find the court systems extremely frustrating. So, you know, with someone like to watch this and see you, you continue to prevail and be resilient and, and, and um, it's, 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 Amazing. So at the end of the episode eight, the finale, after, like I said, you had button, you had gone through this whole, whole grueling, intense investigation with frustrations and so on and so forth. Then all of a sudden now you're presented with another pharma <laughs> fiasco. What motivated you? Well, it was, it was uh, an area that was interesting, even though it was hard, number one. Number two, it was it felt like it was work that had a very huge purpose. Mm-hmm. You know, it had a, a national impact. And I had gotten into the business of being a lawyer and particularly being a prosecutor because I wanted to help people. I wanted to make people's lives better. So that another case like Depakote case, which was pretty clear that they were, um, you know, I don't want to say, well, you know, in a way abusing vulnerable people, elderly dementia patients confined to nursing homes. I mean, I don't know how much more vulnerable you can get. And voiceless. (laughs) Yeah. Case that for me personally was, this is the kind of, this is the reason I'm, I'm doing this work. And so that was, you know, the, the hesitancy, I will say that the hesitancy that's shown in uh, the Hulu miniseries is, is, is an exaggeration. You know, okay. It's a dramatic, <laughs> dramatic exaggeration. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. That's interesting. You know, you always wonder what the motivation is and, and you're kind of like too good to be true. It's, I, I, I say that with such respect and love because, 
I mean, I went through such a hard time, like I said, in the court system and got so disillusioned mm-hmm. by, you know, I am Pollyanna from the get go and always thought, well, right is right. The truth will, will, will out. And it doesn't always will out. <laughs> right. Right. right? Yep. So clearly you took that case, but if you had not been through the case with Purdue Pharma, do you think you would have pursued Depakote? You know, that's uh, a difficult question to answer. Uh, I'm not sure that uh, the Depakote case would have even come to us. Mm. Uh, and, and here's what I mean by that. So the Depakote case was originated by a whistleblower out of, uh, from Georgia by the name of Meredith McCoy. Uh, and, and she had retained an attorney, uh, a whistleblower attorney. And so that these cases, these pharmaceutical cases, when, when you have a whistleblower, they're filing a civil action under the False Claims Act. And these uh, cases involving a national pharmaceutical company can be filed anywhere in the United States. And there are 74 uh, U.S. attorney's offices and, and court districts federally across the United States. So, you know, that case could have been filed in any one of the 74 courts, uh, federal courts across the United States. And I think what the reason it came to us is twofold. Number one, our success with the Purdue case had become known. So it, you know, was apparent that the Western District of Virginia, which a very small U.S. attorney's office, had some expertise and success in that area in dealing with off-label marketing of uh, pharmaceutical. And the uh, our partner in the Purdue case, the Virginia Attorney General's Office Medicaid Fraud Control Unit, had you know the the director of that was you know, very much um, in tune with, you know, he's part of, there's this national organization called the National um, Association of Medicaid Fraud Control Units. And they have a lot of contact with whistleblower attorneys. And um, the head of the Virginia Medicaid Fraud Control Unit, um, again, and, and and I'll speak to, to that group in, in a little bit, but I had gone and I think somehow had a discussion with the um, attorney for Meredith McCoy and convinced them to file that case in our district. So that's how it comes to us without the Purdue case. It probably goes to one of the other districts that mm. does more of these cases like Boston or Philadelphia. Um, so that's how it came to us. Uh, and so two months after we, after the sentencing in the Purdue case, we get this, this, uh, this new pharma case, um, again, working as in partnership with the Virginia Medicaid Fraud Control Unit. So, yeah, I have one other question, because when you brought up whistleblowers, I, I was thinking if someone were, wanted to take on that, that uh, moniker as a, as a whistleblower it, and you have to go to, through a lawyer, is that something that is out of pocket for you or how does that work? The answer is no. Whistleblower lawyers will take on cases on a contingency basis. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you wanted to retain one, you know, they'll, they'll um, screen your case, they'll vet your case. And if they're willing to take it, you'll have to sign some sort of an agreement 
that involves uh, that they'll be able to recover their costs and they'll get a certain percentage. And, um, you know, I'm not exactly sure. It could be as much as 50% or more mm-hmm. of the recovery. Mm-hmm. Um, but you don't necessarily have to have uh, a big chunk of cash going into those cases. Uh, but you do need, do need to have a lot of information Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, and, and I would say a lot of inside information because the, a whistleblower complaint, you know, they, what starts off, they file a complaint in court that's under seal. There are a lot of technicalities that are involved in that kind of a, a, a legal complaint and legal proceeding. And um, what they're hoping is that the federal government or even a state government will do what's called it. They'll intervene and kind of take over the case for them, but that's not necessarily a given because of uh, how few resources there are in the government to to devote to that area. Mm-hmm. But but you don't have to have you don't have to be wealthy going in. You don't have to have out of pocket money. Uh, you just have to have good information, and and usually it's good inside information. That's that's really good information. Thank you. Yeah, so generally, I would add that. The best whistleblowers are former employees of the company, okay? Mm-hmm. And sure. um, because they have, they know what's going on inside the company. They know who's making decisions. They know what directives are being pushed out to sales, the sales force. Um, you know, an outsider, you know, a, a consumer, a patient is probably not going to have sufficient information to have a was a, you know, a, a good whistleblower attorney take on their case. So Rick, Susie and I are kind of familiar with what happened with Depakote for, but, but for the people who are not familiar with that, can you explain to them what the issue was and how, how it was being used improperly? Yes. Uh, so in a, in a, you know, kind of in a nutshell uh, way, Depakote is a drug that's been around a long time. I think at least since the early 80s, it was, mm-hmm. it's approved by the Food and Drug Administration, FDA, for three things. It's approved for the treatment of epileptic seizures. It's approved for the treatment of bipolar mania. Mm-hmm. And it's approved for the treatment as a prophylaxis uh, for migraine headaches. Okay. And so what happened was in the late 1990s, Abbott Labs, who was the manufacturer of Depakote, wanted to expand its market. And uh, for a variety of reasons that we can talk about in more detail, they saw a a niche uh, in the nursing home um, business where Depakote, they would market Depakote for the treatment of um, agitation Mm -hmm. in dementia patients confined to nursing homes, which is completely off-label. Off-label meaning it's not approved by the Food and Drug Administration. And they set up a long-term care division within the company to do nothing but promote it for this unapproved use. You know, they promoted it as being safe and effective to treat uh, agitation and other behaviors that dementia patients sometimes get when, you know, especially when they're in an unfamiliar setting and they have unfamiliar people, 
uh, taking, trying to take care of them. They become combative. Uh, they get, become right. combative, right? And and there are there are behavioral ways to 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 deal with that. Right. The main effect of Depakote for those folks was to put them make them sleep. So in effect, it was a chemical restraint, is what we, you know it's called in the business, or uh, chemical straitjacket. You know, mm-hmm. so you have somebody mm-hmm. that's acting out in the old days, probably way back, they used to put them in straight jackets so they couldn't use their arms, mm-hmm. couldn't hurt themselves, or somebody else. Well, that's not, you don't, we don't do that anymore, but give them a drug, put them to sleep. And now they're not a problem. Uh, they're not uh, being combative. They're not fighting with anybody, that kind of thing. And so, you know, that's just plain wrong, right? It, right. And you, and you have a population that cannot cannot speak out about that. Um, if, if I'm not mistaken, is it true that I think it was 1987 that they made that law that you cannot chemically re- restrain someone? That's that yeah. these drugs that they had been using previously could no longer be used unless it was protecting the safety of the person. Is that accurate? That's accurate. What came out in 1987 It's called OBRA. You know, Omnibus Budget Reconciliation Act of 1987 put into place uh, a whole set of new standards for nursing homes. And so up to that point in time, th- what had been used on dementia patients who were uh, having those kind of behaviors and agitation and combativeness were these antipsychotic drugs like Seroquel, Zyprexa, Risperdal, mm-hmm. which was uh, which were very dangerous, very, very dangerous. In fact, uh, all those drugs, I think, ended up having to include a warning about the risk of death in elderly patients with dementia. Is that the same and, as a black label? Yes. Yeah, it's called a black box warning. Okay. And uh, yeah, we can talk about that in more yes. detail. <laughs> Definitely. I'll Definitely. try not to make it too boring, but. No, it's not boring uh, it's, because it's, if I didn't know that, I, this my mom would, would probably not be here with us. Right. It's a very, it's a very technical thing. Uh, so they all had black box warnings that said, hey, you, you have a significantly increased risk of death. That's for these uh, antipsychotics. If they're administered to elderly patients with dementia. Mm-hmm. And so the the the, um, the purpose of the 1987 uh, law was to pull back on that, to, to make it more difficult for uh, providers and nursing homes to prescribe those kinds of drugs, uh, unless you know they they had to set out a specific um, mental health diagnosis. They had to include uh, drug holidays where they would take. The, that patient off of the drug for a period period of time, see how they did without it. It included the requirement that they prov- try other non-drug measures to deal with that behavior or that agitation. Well, what Abbott saw was, well, that's that all applies to those uh, antipsychotics. Um, they, it doesn't apply to Depakote. Okay, mm-hmm. so we can go in and kind of swoop in and take over where. They used to prescribe uh, those antipsychotics to the uh, for agitation in dementia patients. We'll swoop in and say, well, now that you guys have a problem doing that because of the rules, you can use Depakote and it's not subject to those rules. So, so that's where all of a sudden you had this huge increase in the use of Depakote in nursing homes to uh, uh, control, quote, control the agitation 
in dementia patients. And uh, they pushed that and, you know, maybe they made billions of dollars off of it. And they made it in, you know, what, what, how did they do that? How do they get away with those kinds of things? Like I, from what I heard, they were, they were manufacturing it to make it sound so lovely, like sprinkles that they would sprinkle into the patient's food that no longer could chew. Correct. Yeah, correct. So the, the uh, Depakote had, had black box warnings, right? Mm-hmm. E- even back then. Okay. Um, it, it had uh, black box warnings because it, had the potential to cause liver damage. It had, uh, it was, uh, it was a warning about uh, women who were pregnant taking it because it could cause birth defects. And there was a black box warning because it caused, caused something called pancreatitis, I guess, mm-hmm. inflammation of the pancreas. Those were the three black box warnings. But what um, Abbott did was they, con- they, tr- they conducted these studies, uh, you know, and, and this is how, just like it was shown with Purdue in the Hulu miniseries, uh, Abbott, like all pharmaceutical companies, conducted studies. And, you know, the studies were, of course, if you read them very closely, they were inconclusive at best and were just, you know, completely didn't help them at all at worst. But they, they cherry-picked language out of the the articles written about that studies, those studies. And um, so for Depakote, uh, there was language in a study that it appears to have a beneficial effect uh, in the treatment in patients, in dementia patients with agitation. Mm-hmm. They're not, they don't exhibit that agitation. But so that's the language they cherry picked, but they didn't include the additional language that, that, well, we're not sure whether this is due to the fact that Depakote causes somnolence so that it could be that the reason they're not agitated is because they're asleep. Okay. Yes. <laughs> and that therefore the findings of this study are inconclusive and further studies required. So they don't, they don't take that up, that language. They just cherry pick the parts of the, stu- the study that is going to be a marketing tool for them. Sure, and and, uh, and, yeah. the, and, and systemically, this whole you know the they they're they had such an opening for this because you know our nursing skill, our skilled nursing homes, and our assisted living are so understaffed and and and. Um, at best, at the best places, you know, they, there's just not enough staff and there's no regulation for it, as far as I know, for how many, you know, the minimal amount of uh, caregivers or nurses are needed per, per resident. So, you know, it, I can see why it would feel attractive when you're overworked and you can't attend to all these people. I've been in situations where my mother was in one place where it was like walking into the cuckoo's nest. And, and it, it didn't have to be, right? I mean, these are all right. lovely people. The people that were there were lovely. They were just not being attended to. Right. Yeah. So Rick, with these promotional materials that in theory, the um, sales staff are relying on, and then the nursing homes are in theory relying on the accuracy of these studies and stuff. Who's overseeing those marketing materials? Who's supposed to be overseeing those to see that the language is actually 
you know, verifiable. Yeah. So you're referring to the government agency that is well, uh, kind of overseeing possibly. that, making sure that <laughs> making sure the rules are being followed, right? Well, kind of. Yeah. So that would that would be the Food and Drug Administration or the FDA. And so here's the the thing about the FDA um, is this: there's two there's two issues that that are there with the FDA. Okay. So there's an office within the FDA used to be called the Division of Drug Marketing. Uh, you know, had this long name. The acronym was DDMAC, DDMAC. Uh, it's now uh, called something else, but they're responsible for reviewing all the promotional materials, particularly the ones that are direct to consumer, to patient. But they're responsible for reviewing all pharmaceutical company promotional materials. Now, back, and I was reading something that back in 2010, they had a, an, a staff of 57 at FDA responsible for reviewing all uh, promotional materials for pharmaceuticals. And during that year, there were 35,000 promotional materials that need to be reviewed by a staff of 57. So you can imagine with that kind of ratio, they are not able, physically able, to thoroughly review every piece of promotion by a pharmaceutical company. What, was okay? that strategized by, do you think that was part of their strategy to, to disseminate that much material, knowing that they no, wouldn't be able? No, I, I think this is just, you have so many pharmaceutical companies out there. Okay. And that's sort of the, 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 the amount norm. of promotional materials they put out there. But I think they know, they know, okay, mm-hmm. how understaffed the FDA is and how difficult it will be for uh, an FDA employee assigned to that office to find a particular one, a needle in the haystack right. and focus in on one particular piece of promotion uh, that is false and fraudulent, basically. Eventually, Depakote did get a black label or black box warning for the elderly people that with dementias in particular. At least that's what my mother's GP said. I don't know if you're aware that, but this is a, is a black label drug that could be deadly for someone with dementia. And, and so he, that's how I had first heard about it. I never heard of it. So did it actually have an official warning to that extent? And if so, how did it get that? Yes, Susie, I'm not aware that it had a specific uh, black box warning geared towards the elderly. But if one of its main side effects is somnolence, and as I recall, (laughs) one of the other side effects, uh, some of the other side effects uh, were loss of appetite and um, dehydration. Mm -hmm. I think it's very easy to see how that drug could be deadly to some an elderly mm-hmm. patient in a nursing home, because those are the things that, that are very dangerous, right? Uh, lack of malnutrition, uh, that leads to all kinds of other problems uh, in, in that setting. Um, in dehydration, right? And, and then somnolence, mm-hmm. okay? Now they're just like laid out in, in, a, right. in a bed, not moving, they're malnourished, and now you start to have pressure sores and all those other things. Can I add one other thing? When, when you're dehydrated, and a lot of elderly, when they're dehydrated, you know, bladder infections are a huge deal yes. there. And bladder infections are, you know, they manifest in, in 
psychological ways. Like that's one of the first things they check if someone's yes. being combative. So what they're doing is just basically exasperating what they're trying to, to quell. Yes. So I think it's very easy for, you know, someone who has any kind of experience in treating geriatric patients mm -hmm. to see, Hey, if these are the, this, if this is what happens with that drug. That's, that could be deadly. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm and I'm there. lucky, I, but I don't think everyone, ha you know, I know that everyone doesn't have such a great doctor. I'm so thankful and grateful that he made that call to me because mm -hmm. without him alerting me, I would have never known. I thought this was the wow. end. I think Susie and, and Rick both are hitting on something really important. What I really learned from Dopesick, and then this is, is tying into the investigation into Depakote, is I had never been aware of a black box warning. I didn't know how to find one. I didn't know what it meant. I now understand, I think, the value of knowing what the FDA approved usages of a medication are. And so I'm not sure everybody that's listening really, you know, they may not be familiar with that terminology of a black box warning and the importance of knowing the FDA usages. Mm. I mean, Rick, can you speak to that a little bit? Yes. Uh, yes. And for the caregivers that are listening, um, you know, maybe a couple of pointers here. Number one, um, when the person you're taking care of is, been, is prescribed a medication, there's this very dense pamphlet that comes with it more than just the the little label that's on the bottom there's a there's this, you know they the pharmacy that i go to staples this packet of papers uh to the bag which you know it's very normal to pull it off and throw it in the trash and go and get the bottle <laughs> but if you're a caregiver you should you should look at that uh you know it's it's I know it's, it's a little bit difficult, but look for the side effects and look for it's, it's the black, it's called a black box warning because it's going to be in that packet of papers, that label, which it's called the label that's, and it's going to be outlined in black, hence the black box warning. And that black box warning is put in there whenever the FDA determines that based on the data there is a very serious potential for a side effect, a very dangerous side effect, uh, especially if, if it's a side effect that could result in death. That's where that's going to be. And so it's very important uh, to read that. Uh, the other thing that I think the listeners should know is that a, a licensed physician has a legal right to prescribe a drug off-label for an unapproved use. Uh, so if you're taking care of someone, particularly if they're in a skilled nursing facility and you're the caregiver the, and, and you're getting the notices when they change medications, ask questions about that because just because it's the order comes from a licensed physician doesn't mean the FDA has approved it for that. You need to check that you need to read the label, uh, understand what it's been approved for, because that's going to be in the label. And if it's if your prescribing physician, who who oftentimes is the what the physician who has the contract with the the right. skilled nursing facility, right? They're there. They're only part timers. Mm -hmm. right. They they barely see a lot of those patients. They've got a busy practice, and they're doing this on the side. Uh, if they make a medication change, you need to be all over that. 
you need to check that. You need to find out why. You need to make sure that drug is approved for that use. And if it's not, then you've got a lot of other questions that you should be asking. Um, right. You, if you know your loved one or you're the person you're caring for, there are you will you will see changes and, and you need to question them. You know, I've, I've made every mistake in the book. I, I have. Like I said, I, I thought my mom, this was the progression of Alzheimer's. That's what I thought. And I wouldn't have known it. So if you have any intuition or something doesn't feel right, or, you know, there's a sudden change in, in, in the person that you're caring for it, I think it, 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 it calls to, for further investigation of your own, just to, just to be sure, what are they taking? They don't tell you, they don't, you know, I'm my mom's conservatory person, but I don't get a list of drugs. I have to ask for them. Right. And yep. Susie, you know, with my dad being, he was in skilled rehab and they prescribed, my dad at that time had been living with Alzheimer's for probably 18 years. And I didn't know any of this stuff that we're talking about today. Yeah. And a, a physician who never even met my father prescribed Seroquel, which is an antipsychotic. This is 2012, which is clearly after 1987. Mm -hmm. And Seroquel happens to, it's black box label happens to say that it can be deadly for elders living with dementia. Now I knew every cell in my body knew something was wrong. And my mom as power of attorney went and said, you may not give this to, to my husband. We didn't know why, but everything just, we were lucky. We were just lucky. Now I realize that, you know, if I'd had the information that we're getting today, I could have looked that medication up. I've been on the FDA's website a lot lately looking up medications. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> it's not that hard to use. Um, but yeah, I mean, getting the information that, that Rick you're providing today is actually a little bit terrifying for me because I realize how dangerous the things that were happening to my dad really were. And, and you, you all know how many of the medication changes are done in the skilled nursing facility, right? Tell us. Yes, tell us. <laughs> do, do, uh, tell, yeah, Rick, tell, do tell, Rick, do tell. Yeah. Uh, so oftentimes it's a nurse who sees that, oh, that patient, something's going on with that patient. They're acting us and such. And they will uh, call the doctor mm -hmm. and say, doctor, the, 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 you know, the doctors, he's out he or she is out doing something else, doing their mm -hmm. own direct normal, you know, their, their normal job. Doctor, this is what's going on with this patient. I think you should, I think we should prescribe whatever, Zyprexa, mm -hmm. okay, or whatever. The doctor oftentimes is just a rubber stamp for that nurse mm -hmm. without ever seeing the patient, just based on what that nurse has told the doctor over the telephone, the doctor will approve that prescription. Right. So especially in those uh, in a skilled nursing setting, if there's any kind of change or an addition of medication, uh, there's a, you know, and, and I know this, there's so much that caregivers already have to do. And, and I just don't want to add another burden. But that is the one thing that needs to be questioned is because Understand that the physician is making those prescriptions and making those changes in the medications, oftentimes without actually laying eyes on that um, 
that patient. It's mind blowing. Yes. It's absolutely yes. mind blowing. It seems it's the most unconscionable thing that you could do. And, and yet it goes on. Like you said, it's, it's, it's part of it's, it's, it's part of the, the, uh, that, that whole culture, that whole industry. And, right. and, and it's, it's systemic. It's scary as hell because like I said, we don't know what we're, even if you are the legal conservatory, you're not going to, you're not going to be privy to that information. You're privy to the, you know, if they need money, you know, it, and it, it, you know, that's when they get in touch with you. And so it's, it's everything else you have to, unfortunately, like you said, Rick is, is you have to be proactive. You have to advocate, you have to be the, the ears and the eyes and the voice for the person that you're caring for. And it, and you know, which is why we're trying to make it easier for caregivers and to, to let people know that they're doing an enormous job and you know we need the whole we need support from every every aspect of our society like like you were talking about medicaid and, and medicare and and you know they are they're responsible for the regulations correct so um the in terms of the prescribed uh, prescription use of prescription drugs that's the food and drug administration mm -hmm. okay. so medicare and, and medicaid they regulate sort of the they regulate the nursing homes and, and how the nursing homes conduct business, and and one of the things that I think is a problem is that uh, none of the states and and the federal government neither the federal government nor any of the states require any kind of staffing levels right. for for nursing mm -hmm. homes. It's it's all very, um, you know, it, it, very vague. It's must provide sufficient staff to provide the level of care uh, that's set forth in the regulations. So there's there's no, hey, if you've got, you know, for every 15 patients, you need to have two CNAs. There's none, there's nothing like that. And that's that's a product again of of, of the politics of, of the politics of money, basically, is that the mm -hmm. nursing home lobby uh, makes sure that those kinds of requirements are not put into place in any, anywhere in the law. And, and the result is, you know, nursing homes operate for profit and your biggest, you know, so maximize revenue, minimize cost. Your biggest cost are the labor costs. Right. So if the less staff you have, the, few, the less fewer your costs and the, the more profit you have. So it's and profit, so, profit as opposed to patients, profit in, yeah. ahead of the patients really. Correct. Yes. That's just, that's the system. Okay. Just, so, and I'm sure that the, your, the, the caregivers listening to this uh, podcast who have dealt with uh, their loved ones in a skilled nursing facility have seen that, have seen the chronic understaffing. And, 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 you know, I, and my mother, I was in uh, rehab in a skilled nursing facility that was reputed to be very good for, you know, I guess it was maybe around 85 or 90 days. And it was, and you could just see the chronic understaffing. Mm -hmm. And I felt really bad for the certified nursing assistants, the CNAs who were doing their best for the, you know, the LPNs, the licensed practical nurses who are mm -hmm. providing the hands-on care they're doing they're trying their best but when you're understaffed and you've got they've got call bells going off all over the place mm -hmm. there's only so much they can do okay and you know and maybe things are getting better now but the, the cnas who are actually taking hands-on care 
of our loved ones in school nursing mm-hmm. facilities are paid a pittance for what they do. I I stay very close with the CNAs where my mom's at and and I feel very compassionate for them. And especially now during the pandemic, it's, and we've had Mm -hmm. a surge in the past couple of weeks here in, at least in Los Angeles, it's been rampant. And uh, every day, every day, it's now increasing where it's, we get, we get text messages and phone calls that say, Another 10 staff members have been sent home. Another, another 12 staff members have tested positive. I don't know how they're going to handle it if it continues. And, and I don't know who steps in at what point. What if, I mean, I, I just don't know what's going to happen. I'm panic about it. And, and I talk to my mom's, the nurse that sets up our Zoom calls because we can't visit our, our loved ones now. And, and she is exhausted. And, and, you yeah. know, there's the face people, there's the face behind all of this disaster. What do we do about that? Who, do, how do we, how can we as uh, caregivers step in and make noise and make change? So Susie, I want to take that and tag on to go back to something that Rick talked about, because I really, ex- I experienced the way that the medications get exactly as you described. A nurse observes something, calls a doctor that rubber stamps it. Mm-hmm. And then it just compounds. And I think that, I mean, I, I will tell you at one point, my family told uh, the nurse on duty that my dad couldn't have a certain medication. She literally looked at me and said, well, what do you want me to prescribe for him? And I looked mm. at her and with every ounce of kindness I had, I said, I don't remember getting a nursing or medical degree. Like <laughs> how am I, that's some, uh, what you want me <laughs> to tell you what medication But I think for the people who are listening, as Susie mentioned, yes, caregivers are already overwhelmed. But I can tell you from my own experience, if you have somebody in a skilled nursing, whether it's rehab or or a home, one of the most valuable and important things you can do is be a patient advocate in regard to medications. Because once that cocktail of many different medications are put together, then you start having all these other symptoms and behaviors and everything else My dad was in skilled rehab. It was supposed to be five days. It ended up being 63. And there were four distinct times when he was given the wrong medications and it almost killed him. Sure. They hung IV bags. And and this all goes back to the fact that they're so grossly understaffed. But as a family member, before they gave him a med or they gave him an IV, we checked it. Because four different times the medications they gave him would have killed him. And, you know, it's just, it's a catch 22, but what the caregiver can do is learn to be a patient advocate and look at those meds and look for those black box warnings. And what do you do? Let's say, you know, we, we discover that this kind of thing is going on, regardless of the reason why we all know there's, there's legitimate reasons. What can we do? You're talking about in the big picture kind of. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, we need to make some changes. We need to make some changes. I mean, I literally made a video for for our governor here, like during the COVID, but at the crisis. And and I was like, I put together the most compassionate, tear jerking thing, you know, (laughs) trying to get his his attention. Anyway, you know that it didn't. You know, so yeah, so I guess um, for me, my personal opinion is that. The understaffing is, is the root of so many problems mm-hmm. that come up into in skilled nursing facilities. And so there's got to be a, um, a coming together, a, a coalition 
mm-hmm. of a, some sort of a movement by caregivers, okay, as the voice for their loved ones who are having to live in skilled nursing facilities to, to get the states to require a specific minimum level of staffing. Um, you know, I, I don't know that I've, I mean, I've been looking at skilled nursing facilities probably for eight or nine years now. Mm-hmm. I don't know that there's any kind of group that is really out there pushing for that. I've not seen that. But again, my personal opinion from what I've just seen anecdotally is that, you know, the things that government regulators look for in skilled nursing facilities are pressure sores, you know, lack of nutrition, uh, dehydration, all those things. Those things happen because of understaffing. Mm -hmm. There's not enough time for the staff to properly feed those who need to be have help feeding, there's not enough time for the staff to make sure that, you know, they're getting sufficient um, hydration, that they've got the drinks that they need. And hygiene. Uh, and hygiene. And, mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, clean, cl- making sure they're clean, uh, dealing with incontinence. Um, you know, there are, you, you know, I, I hear stories now where there's complaints being made about a loved one who basically sat in a urine soaked in the urine soaked mm-hmm. clothes for six hours in a wheelchair. Yep. You know, you know, my reaction to that because of the work I've done and it's very sad is that just a normal, that's a normal right. day in the life of somebody in a nursing home. And that's really <gasps> sad. Yep. And that's because they are it understaffed. Is. Okay. And until there's an outrage, okay, by that's expressed by caregivers, by family members, uh, that they express that outrage to the state legislatures, to the to state government, and demand that that standards be put in place that skilled nursing facilities have to follow in terms mm-hmm. of how many staff, the staffing ratios, until staffing ratios are there that they have to follow, then nothing's going to change. Right, right. Yeah, no, and, and it's so bad. I'm sure you've heard of this where there's there's people that they can't they can't afford to be in a nursing home. They can't be, mm-hmm. afford to be in uh, assisted living and they'll go to a hospital for some treatment that they need and then they're put out, left somewhere. Someone with dementia is just left on, on a corner. Be- yeah. And and we're, we are we are a terrible society in that we don't take care of that. And 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 we you know, if we don't see it, it's not there. And that's, that's unfortunate. That's unfortunately what's going on. If, you know, it, it's, it's the blind eye and, and that's what's happening. You're, you're so right. This is why Trish and I are talking about this is why I have this podcast. This is why I've just become uh, an official caregiving.com champion because I'm out there wanting to be, you know, amplify this, this, this crisis. It's a crisis. Yeah, and it's getting worse. So think about this back before pre-COVID. Okay, you had at least the the um, the nursing home or the skilled nursing facility residents who had family members that could advocate for them. They had that right, but there have always been a group 
who are in those nursing facilities, particularly the ones that are funded by Medicaid, you know, your, your mm-hmm. less economically advantaged folks who have no one. I mean, I have no seen cases right. over and over again where so-and-so has been in this nursing home for years and they don't have a family member that comes to visit them. And that right. is just, that's heart-wrenching, right? Yep. And consequently, their care is the worst because there's right. nobody advocating for them. Now with COVID, nobody can get in. Nobody. And so, yeah. yeah. And do you know how many and people so have no died? Door? They've died from being isolated. It's not just, you know, an anecdote. It is science. You can't, people can't survive and, being isolated. Right. No. Plus, you think about how when the caregivers, the family members were able to get in, how much they did, right? They went and fetched the drinks. They went and checked and made sure that the food was eaten properly because they knew that the staff there was did not have the ability to do that because of understaffing. Mm-hmm. So now more than ever, when those family members who were supplementing the paid staff by taking care of their own loved ones, now more than ever, when those folks cannot get in, there's a need for adequate staffing ratios to be put in place and mandated to these skilled nursing facilities and these particularly the corporate ones. Okay? Right. Those are the biggest offenders. And reaction is not a solution. We need to put plans in place because we're already understaffed. And now we have a a pandemic that is making Mm -hmm. that tenfold, right? So what is going to happen? And even if you didn't go in and be an assistant caregiver, hands-on with your parent, the very fact that you could drop in at any moment keeps people on their toes. So again, back to the big picture, what where do we go? We have our coalition. Now, what do we do? All right. Now, now we, we need to start advocating to the state governments, particularly in the individual states, to put in place staffing ratios that make staffing sense. Ratios. So I guess part okay. of that is, is maybe consulting with a skilled nursing facility experts you know, to, to say, well, how many CNAs do you need per every 10 or every 20 uh, residents in, in a skilled nursing facility? Like we do in education. We do that yes. for children, right? We say how many teachers per student? And, and, if, and how many do you need for a dementia ward, right? Because they, they need more care. Right. Indeed. Indeed. I, I, I don't, you know, my sense, I don't, maybe I'm wrong, but my sense is that from a corporate level, the skilled nursing facilities staff dementia wards just like they staff the rest of the facility. And so, so I think part of it, and I don't, you know, maybe this is your show here is where this gets kind of put together, is getting some experts to help. Gosh, I can't believe that this has to have been done at some point. Somebody has to have looked at this because this problem has been in existence for a long time. But come up with a what constitutes a reasonable, rational staffing plan based mm-hmm. on a patient kind of mix. To pay the, you get these kind of patients in these skilled nursing facilities. What are the different kinds you get there? How much care does each, each one of those get need? And then come up with a plan for how the, this place should be adequately staffed. Absolutely. And when a family member is identified at different stages of their of their disease in terms of dementia, 
but can I can I just assure you that you're charged more? And if someone is incontinent, you're being significantly charged more right. for that right. kind of care. So no, so for in just in terms of economics, you know that that should be addressed in that if you're charging my family more for that service, then that service isn't getting done because you're understaffed. That that that's like a, that's a violation to me of, mm-hmm. of services, right? If they're if that's what they're charging you for, and you know it, it and we are we are we're giving our budget towards that, so we expect it to be done. I mean, I think it, until you get into this this community and you really see behind the curtain what's going on, you assume I'm paying I'm paying eight to ten thousand dollars a month. Of course, my my parent or my husband or my wife is being cared for. They're not. As I say, I think for people who are going to be um, faced with finding some sort of facility for a loved one, the patient to professional ratio is one of the first questions you need to ask. How many CNAs, how many nurses per how many patients? Right. And right. I mean, that to me is the critical question. But, and but, there's but, a big, the wide variance too. But, but even still, like where my mom's been at the very best in Los Angeles mm-hmm. and and even then, it's it's understaffed. Yeah. To Rick's point, is that the price for employees is their highest mm-hmm. price tag, and so that's where they make their cuts the most. And I saw it; it's blatant. I don't know how any mm-hmm. of the social workers can go in and not and not see the chaos. It kind of moving a level closer to the patient from the overall. Um, it's some sort of coalition to change the um, staffing. Let's say some you have a loved one in a, a facility. And you think that things are not the way that they should be in regard to medications or treatment. What does someone do then? Where do they take that kind of complaint? Yeah, so assuming you've complained to the staff there, which would, of course, would be, you know, to go to the front desk and Mm -hmm. I want to see the RN on duty or all that, and you get no results, or if you're concerned about a medication that's being prescribed, um, off-label and you're not getting that changed. Um, So, you know, I thought about this beforehand. Um, The place I think to go is the department, the state department of health uh, for two reasons. First, the department of health is usually, and and it may vary depending on what state you're in, but that's usually the state the state agency that's responsible for uh, inspecting and regulating the skilled nursing facilities. Every skilled nursing facilities by federal law must be inspected on an annual basis. Uh, And so the inspectors are normally uh, employees of the department of the state department of health. So that's, so they have that kind of jurisdiction generally. Now it may be different in, depending on what some of the other, what state you're in. So you'd have to go and maybe look up which state agency regulates skilled nursing facilities. But, but that's one starting point. And the other th- place to, to, to look at is if you have some concerns about how a uh, physician or a prescriber, could be an, I think in many states, RNs can prescribe certain drugs, how that person is prescribing uh, the, the place to go if you can't get any kind of a response from that prescriber or the, the facility would be to the Department of Health Professionals because every 
prescriber, whether they're a physician or a registered nurse, uh, or even a licensed practical nurse, are registered with and licensed by the state's department, we call in Virginia, the Department of Health Professionals, not to be confused with the Department of Health, but a, there's an agency that regulates how people with licenses, uh, medical providers with licenses conduct themselves. And so the place to go there, if you can't get any kind of redress directly, would be to make a complaint to that state licensing agency. Mm -hmm. okay. Those are probably, in terms of practical, those are probably the two practical places to go to. You know, I, and of course, you know, HHS has their 1-800 hotline, you know, waste, fraud and abuse hotline, but you're calling a 1-800 number and either leaving a recording or talking to mm -hmm. a, a, a call center, uh, your results are going to be rather slow and cumbersome, you know, so you have to get it, you have to get do it at the low, state or local level. How productive is the, uh, like adult protective services? Is that adult, protective? Yes. Adult protective services. That's another place. Yes, definitely. Okay. Um, Social services too. I think because I know as a conservator, they, they come and do a, a, a report on a yearly basis, at least, I mean, it's only a yearly basis, but at least you have that, that person that, that is assigned to you as a conservator that you can talk to and that, you know, their job is to make sure that the person that you are caring for is being cared for. Yes. Yeah, I think they call them uh, ombudsmen in our in Virginia, mm -hmm. but I think it's the same thing. Yeah. So, so every state has that adult protective service and conservator or ombudsman position. Yes. Um, they're a little bit limited in what they can do, but you know, and that, but some of them are pretty diligent. I've, I've worked with some of those uh, adult yeah. protective services folks, and they're pretty pretty good. Yeah, I had one that was very, very, very proactive and, you know, was, I, I liked it. I said, thank you. I enjoy, I enjoy <laughs> you being grilling me. No, I, I liked it, you know. So, um, yeah, I think you can find, there's always a, a gem to, to find, you know, and, and I, and I always say, make friends with those people that are, that are helping you make, you know, those are your, those are your allies, mm -hmm. right? I mean, yeah. It, that's it. They're so yep. it's so important to build a tribe because it's really hard to do it alone. It's really hard. Right. Oh yeah. Um, you know the situation with skilled nursing facilities, and especially with COVID and everything. To me, that's one of the most shameful things our country has allowed. But I actually think there's something more shameful than that, and that's pharmaceutical companies that capitalize on our most vulnerable population. So kind of in that light, I don't think that um, you've covered what the result of your investigation into Depakote was. What, what happened with Abbott Labs? What, what was their, I hate to say punishment, but kind of. <laughs> oh, they, they, I would call it punishment because Abbott Labs Good. pled guilty. <laughs> they pled guilty to a criminal charge involving what's called misbranding of a, uh, a drug. Uh, misbranding kind of being a legal technical term for uh, basically promoting it off-label, um, promoting it for a use that was not approved and, and, and doing a promotion for a use without providing adequate directions for use based on that population. So they pled guilty to a crime, the company did. Penalty for that was a total of $700 million. 
the the on the civil side uh on you know the the whistleblower part of the case uh abbott labs ended up paying 800 million dollars in penalties and restitution to federal healthcare benefit programs as well as i think um maybe $100 million for violating state consumer protection laws. Mm. Uh, so it was a total of $1.6 billion in penalties. You know, mm. uh, no one, okay, so I'm a, really, this is definitely personal opinion. No individuals were prosecuted. Uh, I will mm-hmm. say that our office, like in the Purdue case, wanted to prosecute individuals. Uh, and we were not allowed to do that by the Department of Justice. Um, and, and I think that that is a that is a problem, a whole different problem, a whole different discussion for another podcast. Yes. About we, how we yeah. handle those cases. <laughs> yes. Yeah. We talked we, we had a little tiny like opportunity to talk to Rick beforehand just oh. to make sure because it's such a huge topic and that. I I I I has I didn't bring that up because I knew that's a whole nother that's a, that's a rabbit hole to go down right right yeah um, yeah no was the, the if I remember right you said that Abbott Labs had a long term care division that was not necessarily I'm not sure what word ethical did they have to close that down as a result of this they did they ended up closing okay. it down probably during I think during the investigation it was it was yeah so. If you're only a, if you're not approved to um, market your product in nursing homes for the treatment of agitation dementia patients, it's pretty blatant to have set up a long term care division <laughs> yeah. just to do that in your corporate structure, right? That wasn't so very that, subtle. No, no not so at that, all. <laughs> uh, so that, yeah, but the, but that, that sort of, and that speaks again, probably probably topic for another podcast. It speaks to the the arrogance, I guess, in part. It speaks to the the feeling that um, you know the feds are so overwhelmed they're not going to catch us anyway. Mm-hmm. It speaks to the even if they do catch us, it's you know the penalty is going to be the cost of doing business, and it's worth it because we're going to make so much money. It's a uh, lost leader, yeah. yeah. <laughs> in a way, yeah. Okay. Well, I think we have to just say thank you, thank you so much. Oh my gosh, God, damn it! You are you got a lot done, Rick. You and Randy yes. got so much done, and and we can't, you know, I we can't thank you. I you've inspired me so much to to continue on, and because it's hard to to like you get exhausted, but mm-hmm. you have to just keep remi- remembering the faces behind why we're doing this and i think that that you know those those are the reasons and those are the motivators and and i love my mom so much so i do this for my mom and everyone else's mom and dad that they love too and we love you rick and uh and love is a big concept for us don always says this he's not here so i'm going to say it love is powerful love is contagious and love conquers alls And I want everyone to go out. And if you want to be part of a coalition, let me know. Get in touch. We're here. We're ready to go. We're we're getting we're getting so revved up about it. So thank you for listening. Share, rate, and thank you again, Rick. Thank you. Thank you. uh, Yes, uh, Susie and Trish, thank you for all you're doing. Our pleasure. All right.